Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a great, great pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be back. As uh, I just said, we've been away uh, just under a month uh, in the USA, speaking initially in Washington, D.C., the church that C.J. Mahaney used to lead, and now P.J. Smythe. Some of you know these names, some don't. Uh, P.J. Smythe has spoken at New Day, spoken stonily, I guess. Um, uh, he's now the pastor of that church, so it was good for us to be there. Um, I'd not preached there for probably like 25 years, but there are still people there who still like us, and it helped build that bridge, and uh, had a great time there in, in D.C., and then we were in a place called South Bend, where about, actually about eight churches came together from just north of Chicago for a conference. We had a good time there. And followed by their elders and wives staying on to a second conference. Uh, and then finally we went to uh, the Boston area where the New Frontiers churches from all down the East Coast, from Boston, through Connecticut, through New York, uh, around that area, about eight or ten New Frontiers churches came together for the sort of thing you're doing at Ashburnham in, uh, in a couple of weeks' time or a few weeks' time, and I'll be at the one in, uh, in Exeter, the because we've got groups everywhere now, praise the Lord. Uh, so it's a joy to be back. Uh, and those of you who uh, knew about it and maybe prayed for us, thank you so much. I, I honestly thought every meeting went very well. And uh, it was just a great, great blessing to be there. I've been asked to speak uh, uh, on revival, uh, which is a series we're starting today. And I guess somewhat came out of our having been together the day before Wendy and I flew uh, to the U.S. Some 500 New Frontiers pastors uh, gathered at Westminster Chapel for a day of prayer. And part of that day, or much of that day, was focused on praying for revival. And uh, Jim's asked if I would just speak onto that theme to start that series we're going to be looking at. I'm very delighted to do so. It's a subject which I think we need to be very aware of, and I pray I can be a blessing in that. So let's pray right now, shall we? Father, thank you so much that you are this wonderful God that we've been singing about. We thank you for your revelation of yourself in such love. We thank you that, Lord, we have one who stands in heaven on our behalf, Lord, accepting us, Lord, giving us the stamp of approval. Hallelujah. We're so grateful, Father. And Father, we do ask you right now, please, as we discuss this mighty theme, that the Holy Spirit will guide and lead, and that, Lord, we might, I pray, see something. I pray we may find that the picture is dusted down and gets clear and bright and exciting and captivating, and, Lord, becomes motivational for us in our hearts and in our lives. Please help us through it. Please guide us, we pray, Father. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the word revival you won't find in your Bible. It's not a Bible word, but it's certainly a Bible theme. It speaks of when God comes to his people afresh and stirs, revives, refreshes them. And you'll find throughout the Old Testament that the story of Israel is not one that's a steady graph. It's not like what starts here and just gets better and better and bigger and better and more and more wonderful. It really isn't like that. Church history is not like that either. 
it has these peaks and then it has these troughs. And then it has these peaks. And so you'll find, for instance, uh, back in the story of Israel, for some 400 years, they're in captivity in Egypt. Then you get these wonderful words from God. I have heard their cry. I have seen their plight. I have come down to deliver them. It's like God suddenly steps on the page. He's very involved with them all along, but there come these moments in Israel's history when God manifests his presence and power starts breaking out and all sorts of things start happening and the program of God surges forward in a new way. That happens again and again in Israel's history. And, and you'll find it in these troughs, for instance, in the period of Judges. After Joshua has led them triumphantly into the land, it says a people arrived who didn't actually know the Lord, and they didn't understand his ways. And even the leaders didn't really understand his ways. And it went into a kind of a trough again. And then there come these times, and it says this repeatedly in Judges, men began to cry on the, to the name of the Lord. And then suddenly, you get another breakthrough, like Gideon. Gideon, for instance, this is just nobody, really. The Spirit of God comes on him, he awakens that army, and they see a phenomenal breakthrough. It's a revival of God's purposes. Happens again when Samuel prophesies, and through comes David, and that great king raises up an army, and it's called like the army of God. And Israel has another peak in its history. Well, it's been like that also... In church history, there have been seasons when God has suddenly moved powerfully by his Spirit. It was good for us, actually, to be praying in Westminster Chapel, because that was the place where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, arguably the greatest preacher of the last century, used to preach every week there. And he used to usually work his way through Bible books, so he was working through Ephesians for ages and ages and ages. But in, 18, in 1959, he stopped the series and took the whole year out to speak about revival, right through 1959. In fact, many of those sermons are now in a book simply called Revival by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he poured out his passionate longing for revival in the nation. He, having come from Wales himself, and Wales has probably had more revivals than even uh, in England, times when God has suddenly come with power. And he gave the whole year to praying or preaching on revival because a hundred years before, in 1859, was the last kind of national great revival that ever hit this nation. A phenomenal revival of 1859. He was commemorating it that century later. I guess most of us would feel, well, we know something of revival. We, we've heard about Whitfield. We've heard about Wesley. Uh, for instance, in the time of uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield, God suddenly came on a group of guys. The nation was probably, to be honest, it's hard to imagine, it was probably in a worse moral condition than it is now. It really was in a terrible plight. The, the, the nation was very, very sick morally and spiritually. It was in a bad, bad way. And a group of men began to pray together. And they gathered in London in what was called the Holy Club. And people were mocking them, really. Wesley, the two Wesley brothers, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Whitfield, and these other men. And suddenly, one night, as they were praying through the night, about three o'clock in the morning, the Spirit of God fell upon these men. And the power of God came 
from them right through the nation. These men traveled up and down the land. It's hard to imagine that George Whitfield would preach to something like 30,000 people in the open air. You wonder what his voice was like. He apparently came to Brighton. I've stood on Brighton seafront and tried to imagine what would 30,000 people around here look like. Of course, there would have been no engines. There would have been none of the noises that we have in our modern world. And apparently he had a phenomenal voice. And he, I would go up and down the land. And at first he preached in churches, but the church was very formal and cold. He was pushed out and he began to preach in the open air. And one of the places he first preached in the open air was in the Bristol area. And it says he preached to these uh, uh, coal miners who came out of the mines, their faces black with soot. And you would suddenly see these white lines down through their cheeks as they began to pray, uh, cry and cry out to God. And in these meetings, people began to cr literally cry out. And sometimes they would, they would carry away the people screaming out for mercy. And the Countess of Huntington, who started some churches in those days, you may have heard of Countess of Huntington churches, they came out of that revival. And she said, Mr. Whitfield, don't carry them out when they're screaming. Their screams are more powerful than your preaching. <laughs> because suddenly there would come this awareness of God. And sometimes people would mock them. You can see drawings and pictures of Whitfield preaching, people blowing trumpets, throwing cats at him. He was sometimes terrific. Yeah, literally. You'd see this hostility, but also a sweeping move of God. And he traveled to and fro uh, uh, USA. I've been to places you can go on the revival tour in the New England in the USA where Whitfield used to preach around them. Thousands became Christians. And Wesley also went across. Of course, Wesley saw this amazing uh, development of what became the Methodist churches, thousands of churches planted on the back of that revival. And then I have another book uh, called England Before and After Wesley by a man called Wesley Breedy. And it's incredibly well-researched, and it shows how the moral and social condition of this nation was radically changed on the back of that revival. So it tells about how prisons were conducted, hospitals, education, the treatment of children, the treatment of women, and it's just documented again. And even slavery, Wilberforce came out of the back of that revival. Great moral battles were fought on the back of a spiritual awakening. The first wave was godly men praying together. God came upon them. They, they said, we began to sing three o'clock in the morning. God's come in the room. God's here. They go out preaching in the streets that's kind of the first wave. Then they start plant churches. Then there's another wave, social action, that came out of the new moral tone that was in the land. You see, you can't legislate holiness. We can't phone up Theresa May and say, could you please change the laws and make life a bit better for us? But when the moral climate changes, government will change with it. So sadly, when the moral climate goes down, government goes with that. You can't legislate, oh God, please let the cabinet change the nation. Only God can change the nation. And the ways he's often done that is through sweeping revival. And that's what happened in 1859, the one that uh, Lloyd-Jones was commemorating. And it started extraordinarily with one man. A man called Jeremiah Lamphere started, he was a, he was a New York City missioner. And he started a lunchtime prayer meeting on Wednesday lunchtimes. 
And he, he just began to say, from, from 12 to 1, uh, you can pray with me at lunchtime. I've got the record here. And he says, on the 23rd of September, 1857, the door was opened and the faithful Lamphere took his seat to await the response. Well, no one turned up for half an hour. And then it says, after, after, actually, after 15 minutes passed, he was still alone, 20, yeah, half an hour later, one person came, and then another, and there were six people by the end of the hour. The following week, there were 20 people. On the third, there were some 40 people. Then what happened was, within New York, there was a breakdown in the banking system. They had a run on the banks, and people began to fear. And out of that fear, more and more people began to pray. And the prayer meetings began to multiply. So he multiplied his prayer meetings. Instead of once a week, they became daily. And crowds were so great that churches began to open their buildings at lunchtime for prayer, some once a week, some every day. Until in the end, it says in here, and I can't read all the detail to you, of course, some 10,000 people were gathering daily in the New York City for prayer. Businessmen. Businessmen. It'd be like someone opening a church in London and saying, look, guys, you want, many of you work around here. Let's come in and pray. And 10,000 were praying, and then suddenly God began to break out. And it says that the, the Fulton, Fulton Street prayer meeting was still accommodating the, the, the crowds, three simultaneous prayer meetings, but then on the back of it, without getting into the more detail, the record is, and this is a very, very well-researched book by J. Edwin Orr, who I actually heard speak in England some years back. Uh, he's researched revival probably as much as anybody has. A million people were added to the American church. So he's not talking about hands up, you know, praise God for Billy Graham and J. John, hallelujah. Praise God for hands up, it's wonderful. We don't despise it at all. But we're talking about a million people added to the churches of America, a million people in the next couple of years. And then not only that, it swept across to Ulster, and I love reading about the Ulster revival. It, it was on the back of what happened. And one of the things about revival is it seems to be contagious. It does seem to be like that. People, when, the, when the Welsh revival happened in 1905, people traveled down from Scotland just to see it, went back, and it started breaking out. It does happen like that. And it broke out in Ulster, it broke out in Scotland, and then it broke out in England. And again, well documented and researched, a million people were added to the British church in one or two years. And, and here you can, read, you can look up your town in the index and tells you what happened in this town, that town. You can read about theatres turning into prayer meetings, queues of people not being able to get into the prayer meetings, and God suddenly coming from what seemed to be pretty dead, cold. And there come these intervals. So certainly the, the awakening under Wesley and Whitfield, the late 1700s, just into the 1800s, then it must have gone down again, then 1859. See, like 50 or 60 years later, another wave of blessing came. And, and in this book, you can read about, for instance, Brighton. It says here, daily prayer meetings with very few, with very few started in Brighton, growing and filling larger and larger rooms in the pavilion. 
It says that the ministers of congregations from eight or nine different churches started a weekly prayer meeting, rotating from one church to another. The outsiders in Brighton weren't affected until three years had passed. Late in 1862, the Reverend Denham Smith from Dublin began an evangelistic campaign with immense audiences in the pavilion and the town hall, which finally filled a circus tent with more than 2,000 people who heard the word gladly, and many believed. And it talks about people, strong men, bowed down. It says, in the spring of 63, the same scenes were repeated in the pavilion with the same evangelist, and soon another evangelist, Harrison Ord, followed and preached to some 5,000 people. The awakening continued in Brighton long enough to make it a great evangelical center. Now, you can look up town after town in here. Like, you know, look up Leeds, look up... The, you'll find one after another. This, this theater was full, crowds of people, starting with prayer meetings. So what happened originally with um, Lamphia in New York was repeated again and again and again. And the sort of thing that happened, here's another account from uh, Arthur Wallace's great book, In the Day of Thy Power, just describing one of the meetings. The power of God seemed to descend upon the assembly like a rushing mighty wind and with astonishing energy bore down all before it. I stood amazed at the, at the influence that seized the audience almost universally and could compare it to nothing more aptly than an irresistible force of a mighty torrent Almost all persons of all ages were bowed down with concern together, and scarce one was able to withstand the shock of this surprising operation. God coming with power. You can read about these things. I would recommend Colin Whitaker's book, Great Revivals. Just a slim, easy-to-read book. It tells you one after another of these extraordinary times of revival. When God comes and changes the atmosphere. He comes with power, he comes with glory, and he awakens interest. Now Lloyd-Jones took that year to talk about it because he said in 1959, and he said this before the so-called swinging 60s, when so much of English culture really began to change and its laws began to change and its appetites began to change. He said in 59, if we don't see revival in this nation soon, we're in real trouble. And that's before all that happened in the 60s. And if you look back now to the 60s, they look pretty tame. They look pretty tame. And when we gathered at Westminster Chapel those three or four weeks ago, the more, in the morning, Topi Colioso, who leads probably our biggest church uh, in New Frontiers, now nearly 2,000 gathering with him now in London, he led us in the morning and he talked about the conditions of our nation today, what's happening, the slide, the, the real need, and it was very stirring and moving as he led us to pray, saying, hey, look at the situation. We need God to move. We need the power of the Spirit. Now, for myself, it's interesting, actually, because I used to work dead opposite Westminster Chapel. Literally, I, I, I worked in London for five years after I left school. And just across the road from the chapel was my office. And it was amazing to be standing there these years later, praying for revival. Because when I was in that work situation, 
it was from there that God called me to be full-time. And the way he called me was this growing longing for God to move. Uh, and this awareness that we need revival. I'd read Arthur Wallace's In the Day of Thy Power. And to be honest, the word revival was on the lips of many people. Strangely enough, since uh, uh, speaking at the chapel four weeks ago, I had a, I've had a letter from Christianity magazine saying, the word revival is no longer on people's lips like it used to be. Can you write that up for us in the magazine? We'd like to know more about it. Because what, back in those days, revival was the thing Christians talked about quite a lot. There was a longing for revival. I used to go to London for half nights of prayer for revival. A man called George Ingram, dear elderly man, used to kneel on the floor in the middle of these people holding up his hearing aid and crying, God, come to our land. And I remember being there thinking, wow, what a privilege to be with these senior people saying, God, please come. Please come in revival. Come with this sweeping breakthrough power that you've done before. And then I got filled with the Spirit in 62. And lots of people began to get filled with the Spirit. It was a new phenomenon. Denominational people. I mean, the, the, we knew about the Pentecostals, but to be sad, sadly, kind of Pentecostalism had been slightly pushed to the margins. And mainstream uh, church life didn't much know about being filled with the Spirit. And then in 62, people started getting filled with the Spirit. Different ones here and there, up and down the country. Michael Harper, who was a curate at John Stott's church, All Souls, Langham Place, he got filled with the Spirit. And the news was going out, people are getting filled with the Spirit. And I thought, is this the beginning of revival? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, revival is when many Christians get filled with the Spirit. To be honest, it's one aspect. But I thought, is this the beginning of it? And by that time, I, I joined a fairly radical prayer meeting. We used to meet on Monday nights and, and, and just cry to God and pray and pray, God, come in power, come in power, just in a friend's home. And then we thought, well, can't we pray more? So we started Saturday mornings as well. And, you know, Friday night, uh, Monday night, Saturday morning, Lord, please come in revival, please come in revival. And I felt God was stirring me and saying, I want more of your time. And I thought, well, you know, I, I leave home at seven in the morning. I get home at seven at night. Um, it's quite hard. And uh, I just felt this growing urgency, growing urgency. And then I actually, I slipped on the Sunday morning down to the Elim Church. And I had two prophecies. And one was, I'm calling for your time. I'm calling for you. I want you to be in prayer. You know, it's given to the meeting, but I'm in the meeting. And there are times when things are said, you feel, I'm the only person in the meeting. It comes to you, doesn't it? It's just a way. I thought, Lord, I know you're calling me. And I thought, well, how can I? How can I? And then, and then there was a second prophecy, like those who put God first, I'll look after. And it just arrested me. I gave my notice the next day and left work. I had to give a month's notice. And after that month, this, this guy who led this little prayer meeting, he, he became the director of British Youth for Christ a bit later. His name was Phil Vogel. He and I used to meet together. And another guy who was in that group also felt God stirred him. He gave his notice the same day. He was in a conference in Scotland and felt God called him. And not, we, we neither of us knew that the other was doing it. And from that time on, the three of us, for several months, and then he went away to Bible college and went off to South America as a missionary. 
We prayed every day. We got together on Mondays right through Saturday. Every morning, we'd be on our knees for two or three hours every day, praying for revival, praying for revival. We'd pray for every evangelical church around the town, just praying, God, come on this church, come with power, come with revival blessing. Uh, And then we started a journey, actually, which one didn't anticipate at the time. At the time, just praying, God, please come like you've done in these days, like you did in these wonderful awakenings. You know, you read about this one, for instance, I just picked up another book on revival. Uh, when it happened, in, it happened in the Hebrides in the 1940s, and it says, a blacksmith was asked to pray. His prayer turned the promises of God and to his, his own thirst for God and concluded, oh God, your honor is at stake. I now challenge you to fulfill your covenant engagement and do what you've promised to do. At that moment, the house shook Dishes rattled on the sideboard as wave after wave of divine power swept through the house. When this group of praying people closed the prayer meeting and went outside, they found the community alive with an awareness of God. You read the details of that revival. People literally were woken up in the night and went to that chapel. They didn't know why. And that revival with Campbell uh, Morgan... Uh, Duncan Campbell, Duncan Campbell preaching lasted for quite a while. Many, many were saved. Just that sense of God. And they said, they said it was like, sometimes it was like the town was filled with the presence of God. And it says in one of the accounts of what happened in New England, there was scarce an unsaved person in the town. God sweeping through in phenomenal power. So that's what we were praying for. And to be honest, some of those mornings, I remember one morning when I was praying with Phil, just crying to God, the intensity of God's presence, honestly, was so great, I was scared to open my eyes for what I might see. So we really were going after God with all our heart and really feeling God was giving us promises. I felt God was promising it was going to come, revival was going to come. And then God took us on a journey, really, because the word revival began to be replaced by the word restoration. Because what happened was more and more people were getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And a new wineskin was needed for this new wine. You couldn't call it revival in a classic sense because classically revival, which starts in the church, like it did with Wesley's Holy Club, breaks out. I mean, I think it comes in waves. It comes within the church. The church is awakened somehow. It gets dusted down. They begin to see things like they know, but they suddenly know it more. They suddenly tighten it up with intensity, things they're aware of. And yeah, we know these things. It's a bit like we were saying in the worship. I'm just going to read these words out so we don't miss it. You can miss things. You can know them, but not know them. You can be aware of them, but not be captivated by them. And revival is when suddenly the things you know, you know, you suddenly know it in sharp contour. It captures your heart. That's what happened in the revival under Wesley. It's what happened in every time. Suddenly the church comes awake. On the back of that, there comes prayer. On the back of that, one of the things I've noticed in here, evangelists get raised up. Evangelists. Sometimes names you know, like D.L. Moody came on the back of the 1859 one. Some guys you've never heard of at all. They saw hundreds saved. God just coming. Evangelists get raised up. The gospel has to be preached. And then you find even social change. 
radical social change coming. It's like wave after wave, which are actually on the back of the Wesleyan revival, the British culture really got established. People today say, what, what is British culture? We're not quite sure what it is anymore. And they say, we're not allowed to refer to Christianity because we're multi-faith now. But the reality is the British culture was birthed out of mighty revivals that changed conscience about how you treat children, how you treat prisoners, how you act in hospitals. Out the back of it, God moved and changed a nation. And actually out from it went missionary thrust to the ends of the earth that changed much of the world. And so for us, we realize if these people are getting filled with the Spirit, the church is a bit cold and a bit formal. And there wasn't really room for new life in the Spirit. And so we had to start new churches. And many of them started in homes because we just wanted to be open to this new presence of God, this new awareness and gifts of the Spirit so we can prophesy and speak in tongues and interpret and, and lay hands on the sick. A whole, something, you couldn't call it revival, but it's a renewing. Some called it renewal and tucked it on the edge of church. Say, well, we won't change church. You tack on the edge, renewal. But some of us felt no restoration. God's saying, I want the church changed. I want churches built on a different foundation not built on the foundation of ecclesiastical structures, not built on the foundation of democracy, I believe this, no, but built on godly principles of eldership and Ephesians 4 ministry. So there's a recovery of the church. We went on a journey, which we didn't, when we got filled with the Spirit, I wasn't looking for that journey. When I left work, I was only looking for revival. But God's taken us on a journey. Churches, 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 churches. Then on the back of that, training leaders, making disciples, raising up people, apostolic, a glorious church, world mission, with grace. God's added, 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 added things that have filled out the message. And for myself, I find now God is kind of turning the circle and saying, now, now, you could be ready for revival. I actually feel if revival had come in the early 60s, the church was so formal and pretty cold and wouldn't have known what to do with it. In fact, very early on, when I first became a pastor, I thought, oh, we've got to do evangelism first. So we started going to coffee bar evangelism and we had a prophecy that God said, I want you to mend the nets. Your nets aren't mended. And we learned about small groups, which we never had before. We learned about being more relational, doing the one another stuff, mending the nets, mending the nets. And I think that's happened across the nation now. So that if revival had come then, yeah, across the nation, there wasn't an awful lot of life in the churches to hope for cope with that. But now, it's a very different thing. The Capel Bible Week, which some of you are old enough to remember, but maybe not many, there was a, a lady from America who spoke. Her name was Jean Darnell. And she said, I've seen a vision. And the vision is of the whole of England, but I see like beacons of light scattered all over the country. It became quite famous at the time. A lot of people spoke about Jean Darnell's vision of these lights, these beacons burning across the nation, burning across the nation. And to be honest, I feel now there are so many lights across the nation that used not to be there. I mean, there are 300 plus 
New Frontiers churches that did not exist. I remember years ago, people said, oh, have we a church here? Have we a church there? I said, no, no, no. Now, there's very few places. Then you've got new wine churches. You've got HTB churches. You've got vineyards. You've got Salt and Light churches. You've got Stuart Bell churches. You've got Dave Smith churches. You've got, hey, you've got hundreds of bright, viable churches. Now, we know also the land has got darker and darker. People in the States who've just come back, they say, what's the situation in England? We hear it's bad. We hear it's bad. Well, it is. It's very bad morally. We've lost our way. But in the midst of the darkness, these, these churches have got brighter and brighter. Brighter and brighter. And locally, even like our MP, Christopher Soames, said when this building opened, this is a bright, shining church. It's a bright, shining church. And you could say that in many places where these churches did not exist. I mentioned Toppy. He started with 70 people some years ago, nearly 2,000 now. The church at Hastings, I was there when we started with 11. Now it's like 500. The church at Eastbourne, when we started there with 24, I was there on its second week, about 1,000 now. The church in Brighton, we started with 38, about 1,500 now. We've got these, these churches getting brighter and brighter and brighter. Dave Smith's church in Peterborough, we just heard about. I, I worked with Dave on that site. He'd started in his home, he and his wife. Now he's got, I mean, he must have like 2,000 in this huge church now. God's doing it, God's doing it. And Jean Darnell said, I see this happening across the nation. But very, very recently, I heard from a lady called Ginny Bergen. Now, some of you know Ginny, some of you haven't heard that name. She's a lady in the Sheffield church very remarkably gifted in prophecy. And she wrote to me saying, when I was converted in 1973, she said, I had a vision. Now, she is a remarkable prophet. She's, she's the one, you may have heard of this story, that God told her and showed her across the nation that the nation would be full of mourning and there would be flowers filling every town in the country and the heart of the nation would be weeping. She saw that some weeks before Diana's death and that extraordinary phenomenon of town after town being filled with flowers. She said God showed her that before it happened. And she said, God said to her, I have the towns of this city, of this nation, in my hand to turn to sorrow or to turn to joy. And I will turn them to joy. But she saw this sign of these flowers in place after place. And then that extraordinary phenomenon that happened. I've never known anything like it. When the nation, and it's interesting, some 20 years on from Diana's tra tragic death, Princess Diana, we're thinking again about what happened in that time. And every time I see that movie, The Queen, I'm reminded <laughs> of that time when this nation was suddenly... In, uh, Wendy and I were in the USA when that happened. We saw it through American television. And people say, what is happening in England? It's like the whole nation is mourning. It's an extraordinary phenomenon. Sorrow swept through the land and flowers filled city after city center. And she had this vision. And God spoke to her and showed her a map of England. She said, it was as though I was being raised in the air, looking down on the UK, as though I could see the whole... And as I looked, I could see pinpricks of light all over the land. 
As I continued to look, the light around grew steadily dimmer and darkening, but the pinpricks grew brighter and bigger. And she said, as I looked on, they're growing and growing until ultimately the fires flared into one huge burst of flame. And she believed that that was the promise that God would send revival, that he would awaken the nation. And she asked God, and she felt God said, I'll give you two confirmations that I've spoken to you. And she thought they would come kind of immediately or within a few days. But actually, she had to wait some years. And in 1977, which was some four years later, she saw, went into her room, turned the television on, and it was a Queen's Silver Jubilee. And they showed from the air beacons being lit all over the nation. And she thought, that's my vision. And it's God's confirming it to me. That is the vision. And then she said, but I asked for two. And she felt God said two confirmations. She had to wait a little longer, some years again. And in 95, she said again, turn on the television. And it was 50 years on from VE Day. And light beacons were being lit. The first one being lit by the Queen. And went sweeping right across the nation. She saw her vision all over again. Then, more recently, she said she was praying about all this and asking God, Lord, you know, I'm waiting for these things. It's interesting, when you read the prophets, I'm reading through Jeremiah myself at the moment, you know, they're often praying over years and prophesying and years slip by and years slip by. And she said, more recently, this happened, that uh, she asked God that he would speak to her and confirm all this to her. She said, she was praying particularly on one Saturday night. On the following morning, in the middle of our worship, a man came to the door of the church asking for her. And he went, she went to speak to him. And uh, he didn't know her, just asked for her by name. And uh, she went to the door and she said, the guy said to her, God spoke to me and told me to find you. I'm on my way south, I've been in the north of England and told me to come here. He didn't even know which church she would be in, but felt God directed her, him, to the church that she was in. And he said, it's what my job is, I have to tell you. I don't know why I have to tell you, but God's told me to come and find you and then tell you what my job is. So I'm just being obedient to what God said. He asked me if I remember the beacons being lit for the Queen's Silver Jubilee and for the VE Day celebrations. I said yes. Then he told me his job was working on the Millennium Beacon Committee responsible for organizing the lighting of beacons up and down the land, which was to happen at the dawning of the new millennium. He worked directly towards the Queen and the starter of the equipment to light the first one. And it was the very thing that she'd been promised. And this guy didn't know why he'd been sent, didn't know why he was there. He'd just come because he felt God told him to do. And here was this kind of further confirmation that God was speaking to her through these things. I truly believe that God wants us to pray for revival. I believe God wants us to expect the coming of revival. 
once at our Brighton conference, a guy prophesied in the morning meeting, and he said, I see a great wave out to sea that's coming, it's going to sweep across the nation, and it's taller than any of the hotels here. It's going to come with great, great power. In the afternoon, a guy who had not been there in the morning meeting stood and prophesied exactly the same, not having heard that a wave is growing out to sea and will sweep across the land. I've felt for years God will send revival, God will come with power, God will work. Recently I had a message from an Indian prophet whom I have met once before and he occasionally gets in touch with me when he feels something God putting on his heart. He said, you will see revival in your nation following a wave of national fear. Now, he wrote that to me before the Manchester event, before the Westminster Bridge event, and the nation in turmoil. You will see revival. It's great to start this series. It's great to kind of paint the picture, I hope, of what God has done in previous generations, what God is willing to do, what God can do, what he's done in this nation in the past. I just want to encourage you to uh, be prayerful, to be ready to pray, to be ready to seek God. I want to encourage you. You might not in our twos and threes, as well as at uh, the boiler room and every opportunity we get to pray, to start crying to God, that he might come in power, that this promise, this promise, and the awareness that God is giving specific promises to people, that he might come and sweep in again, that he might stir prayer, that he might raise up great evangelists, and that this nation will feel the coming of God's power once again. I could read you many, many more stories and illustrations. Our time's gone. Uh, I would encourage you to get books about revival. Some of them are not so easy to get anymore. The second evangelical awakening, you'd have to search for it secondhand. Uh, even Arthur Wallace is in the day of thy power. I'm not quite sure how easy it is to get now. You can always get Colin Whitaker's book, Great, Great Revivals, just a magnificent, a brief, easy to read one. This one by Brian Edwards. Uh, there are many books you can read. How God has come. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be the generation when God comes? New day this coming week. I just saw Francis Chan on a little video. He's an amazing man. He said, why not believe that this could be a week when God comes and changes us, meets with us. There are many reaching out to God now. Many conferences, many opportunities, many times of prayer. Let's believe God. He wants to do something in our generation. Have mercy on this nation for his great glory. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you so much for the mercy that motivates your coming. We thank you for the power you demonstrate. We thank you, Lord, the thought of theaters being filled with praying people, queues being turned away. We thank you for uh, Justin Welby's appeal to pray, thy kingdom come, hundreds filling uh, the uh, cathedrals of the nation, queuing, queuing up to get in. We are so grateful, Father. Thank you for the thousands praying with Mike Betts at his enough prayer nights. Lord, thank you that a cry is growing, prayer is multiplying. We thank you for Pete Gregg and his 
emphasis on prayer. We thank you, Lord, for every, every call. We ask you, Lord, include us, please. We want to be part. We'd love to be one of those burning, shining lights. We'd love the light to shine bright from this place, Father. So, Lord, come in great mercy, we pray. Help us to be full of faith, full of expectation. Let your scriptures come alive to us. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We pray for it, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.